0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Cursed Objects. My name's Dan Hancocks, a journalist, writer, and dinner enthusiast.
1: And my name's Dr. Kasia T, a historian and a dinner shirker.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: A shirk dinner. I don't want to. I don't want to know how your day was. I don't want to chat about it over dinner. <laughs> I just want to eat and go.
0: Wow, that, there'll be no place for that kind of attitude today, I'm afraid to say. Um, cursed Objects, if you haven't heard it before, is a podcast about cultural history, pop culture, politics and tat, or the bits and bobs that we find in charity shops and on eBay.
1: Yeah, where uh, every week we kind of bring in, uh, each of us brings in an object, kind of a little bit like a cursed show and tell, and we explore the kind of social worlds that surround it. And I think today we're going to be exploring a number of social worlds, which is exciting. So Dan, you've brought something in.
0: (laughs) So this week I've brought in an object which belongs to my mother, though she has very recently offered it to me um, because I think it doesn't quite get enough use. She might dispute that. It's an asparagus steamer, which is a highly specific bit of kitchen equipment. Um, And today we're going to be talking about all the big ones. We're going to be talking about class, we're going to be talking about gender, we're going to be talking about British identity and history, we're going to be talking about the 1970s, so prepare to sashay back in time a little. Um, But we're also going to be talking about capitalist production, as usual, and, uh, (laughs) and sort of what are the associations that we have with various different ideas of particular meals, of how food is created and for whom. Um, we, you know, on Cursed Objects, we've talked a lot about the kind of class identities that go along with food in the past. Um, today's less about the actual food itself, I suppose, and a little bit more about where we eat, who we eat with, um, and, um, and the way that we eat, rather than what's yeah. necessarily on the plate.
1: I've got lots of questions about this asparagus steamer, let me tell you.
0: <laughs> well, well, we'll get into the... So I'm supposed to describe it, actually, first of all. We're looking at a kind of... I mean, you know what shape an asparagus is? It is long and thin, and the steamer accommodates that uh, appropriately with a sort of metal mesh kind of cylinder um, so that they can stand up without breaking, because you don't want to... Like, what's the point of having a delicious asparagus if you're then going to chop it into tiny bits? Um, and throw it in a in a saucepan it needs to maintain its structural integrity you know it's about the presentation at the end which I suppose is very important to all kind of dinner parties Um, I
1: just have so many questions (laughs) I just don't know like how much asparagus would you have to eat to justify owning an asparagus steamer like do you do you eat it every day or every couple of days or like you know how do you quantify its use
0: that's a very reasonable question. It seems like, and I'm sure we're going to come on to some other examples of this, it seems like the kind of kitchen gadget that you're like, this is an extremely niche thing that you will use once a year. Or you might like buy and be really enthusiastic about use once and then put in the cupboard for, for five <laughs> years. But I'm sure we've all got several things like that. I know that happened with the uh, bread maker that my ex bought mm. some years ago, just just like our friends warned it was like yeah you'll you'll use it three times and then it will go, gather dust for the rest of its life. Now my mom would say, defence of her asparagus steamer, she uses it a lot during the seasons. Like how much do you need to use it to justify? <laughs> you need to be really into asparagus, and she is. It's a you know favorite vegetable, <laughs> delicious when it's fresh in season. It's also you know it fits with sort of current voguish stuff on like eating seasonal British veg when it's available, not importing stuff from around the world. Anyway, th- but suffice it to say, this particular object goes back to the 70s, or at the very least the early 80s. Um, when uh, and, and that's sort of, I suppose, why today's Cursed Objects is very much about a specific period in history, um, i really the 1970s we're talking abigail's party we're talking um the 70s dinner party um book and meme and social media account if you're not familiar with that uh that's very much the kind of world that this emerged from emerges from where um you know sort of everything's in aspic everything's in in uh in savory jelly if you're not familiar <laughs> With um with seventies <laughs> dinner party, it's 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 um it's sort of a very it's absolutely thrived as a sort of social media account. I think possibly as a Tumblr first of all, and then on Twitter and on Instagram. They then produced a very successful book, which is called Seventies Dinner Party, um, and it sort of speaks to uh, a, yeah a period when there was a lot of. Um, pretense and pretension perhaps when people were trying to show off and not quite knowing how to do it um there's a lot of implied <laughs> sort of aspirational lower middle class or sort of emergent mi- middle class kind of sensibility here like the you know the presentation of each dish is really important um we're using a lot of exotic ingredients at the time exotic ingredients in Britain so like pineapple like you know we've put some pineapple in your like chicken stew for some reason or uh you know we've I'm pretty sure something that's where that, pineapple like, on pizza comes from as well
1: yeah like I think I mean it's interesting right because something like pineapple just the way it had to be eaten before advancements in like tinning technology like tinning and canning you know it's like yeah it's interesting maybe in that sense it was kind of aspirational you know because it was like the development of Uh, preserving food in that way is actually Mm. phenomenal you know like it completely transformed the way that we eat and how we eat so yeah it kind of stands to reason that like pineapple (laughs) that like is something that would be harder to get right it's like amazing that that process made it easier
0: absolutely um I'm actually just going to send you a photo, um, so Cash and I are recording remotely today because, you know, it's January and it's cold outside, and we live on opposite sides of London, but Cash, I'm just going to I'm just going to send you a photo of one of the images, beautifully curated images from the 70s dinner party book, which is of a seafood moose. Um, <laughs> if you just... Can you see that? It's poss- possibly the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. The, the moose I mean, it's sort of been shaped into a sort of semicircle, like a, a, a... But it's sort of got... The fish has... There's some sort of orange paste has been used on top of the fish to give it, like, a smi- uh, fake scales on, on top of this moose And then, like, a smile, which is extremely sinister. Um, and yeah. then, I don't know, what... Are those cherries as eyes I or think, something? God, I think God maybe knows. cherry
1: tomatoes. Like, it looks um, almost like the colour of... Um, sausage meat like if you got sausage meat and kind of shaped (laughs) it into a horseshoe and then you added some kind of I don't know maybe strips of smoked salmon it's that kind of orangey color on top of it to kind of give it like a scaly like look and a tail like look and then a kind of like two cherry tomato eyes (laughs) and then there's little I actually think it's a very lovely smile it's very big
0: sure I think it's kind of
1: Delightful. <laughs> the seafood
0: moose has won you over with its sort of strange, anthropomorphized like... Um, Charm, uh, yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> and, and, and why not? Fair enough. Um, so, today I kind of want us to dig into, like, what the problem around the idea of a dinner party is, as well. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty... They, they carry such kind of cultural baggage. Um, I almost feel it's a bit like the word hipster in that it's never used to self-describe, it's only ever used to, to sort of uh, deride others. So um, mm-hmm. like one particular example that came up, um, I don't know where, why how I came across this 2018 Daily Express front page, I think it was in the news again, this subject, but there was a, a Daily Express front page, dinner parties fuel stabbings, government blames middle <laughs> class for knife crime chaos which is so that's about that story is is essentially about um the government trying to make a connection as often happened as has happened a few times in recent years between county lines drug dealing um and youth violence and the fact that middle class consumption of some particular drugs um particularly cocaine I think is supposed to be like directly implicit in that violence um mm. That's one, it's sort of a scapegoat for a whole multitude of sins, the dinner party. Like, it's, it's something that, it's where, like, the country is thought to be stitched up by a secretive, probably quite liberal, metropolitan elite.
1: Well, it's, it's kind of also like um, when newspapers say Islington, you know? Like, oh my God. like islington whenever, whenever is- <laughs> yeah, Islington <laughs> so dinner parties—it's just yeah. classic, you know. Even though Islington has an exceptionally high uh, rate of child poverty, you know, as a borough, it has like exceptional wealth, but also like you yeah. know serious like deprivation. But Islington mm-hmm. is used as this kind of like catch-all term for. I don't know, like swanky '90s kind of shishi dinner party culture, I guess, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, you know, you could potentially blame the fact that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had dinner at Granita on Upper Street in 1994. <laughs> I want to say, possibly five, um, to stitch up the future of the of the Labour Party, which is uh, the subject of an excellent TV movie called The Deal, which I am such a nerd that I have on DVD somewhere. It's a brilliant film. Um, it's so Stephen old school. it's Gordon Brown? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's when does it? I think it's from. It was. I think New Labour in power when it came out, but it was latter period New Labour. But it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Um, but yeah, there is this association with Islington. In fact, one of my friends, when I was discussing this episode earlier this week with with mates in a group chat, one of them said, "Yeah, I, I, I sort of asked you know, do you have dinner parties? Do you ever go to dinner parties?" Everyone says no to this question. Nobody wants to be at a dinner party. Ever, they want to have dinner with their friends, and possibly mm. with some strangers. Um But they uh and I think maybe perhaps the distinction I want to unpick here between having a dinner party and having dinner with people is that mm. is the is the um, maybe there's a level of formality implied in the dinner party. There's a level of like putting on airs and graces, which again is about it's about kind of the mul- the markers, the ritualistic markers of class. Like we talk a lot yeah. about material objects and that's the point of this podcast but like rituals and practices i.e. things that aren't necessarily concrete but involve a lot of concrete trinkets or um literally made of concrete if you had concrete trinkets at your dinner party that would be really weird (laughs) or possibly kind of brutalist and cool I don't know but yeah one I asked I asked my mates about you know do you have dinner or do you have dinner parties and so one of my friends said in response to this question I feel like having dinner people around for dinner is different to a dinner party a dinner party presumably includes some kind of visiting scholar who you don't know and it has at least eight eight people. Also, it happens in Islington, <laughs> which speaks to exactly what you're saying. So it's, it's just, maybe it's about like it's an occasion that's a bit more formal and a bit different to like it's Tuesday night and you've got your mate who lives around the corner to come over for pasta.
1: Yeah, well, this is the thing, because going around to your mates for dinner is explicitly from, like, how I do it, like, a money-saving thing. Like, you don't want right. to go to the pub because you know that if you go to the pub, you're going to spend loads of money and you might end up getting shots. Whereas, like, if you
0: <laughs> if you go round
1: to someone's house, you know you're just going to have a little bit of food, maybe one bottle of wine, go home early night, you know, wake up the next day bright and sprightly for work, you know? Like, that's the difference. I think it's interesting that, like, the way those two things are framed, a dinner party seems to, like, what, have more more of a kind of like fancy idea around it and therefore seems more, yeah. I don't know, expensive, more exclusive, when actually they're both the same thing, right? And also kind of cheaper than going out and accidentally getting shots.
0: <laughs> but I think the, mil- the... the So like my partner is a huge defender of the dinner party. She was like, I'm going to reclaim them from their like bad reputation because I like having dinner with mates. It's cheaper. It's nice to cook for people. Like it's more informal and, you know, there's definitely, while it's associated with people who I think are maybe middle-aged and have achieved some success in their jobs and are therefore in a position to network, like, you know, the idea that you would network at a dinner party is a big part of it, right?
1: Yeah. And you need space, right? You You need a spare room. You need like, or like enough space to have people over. So it's all about where people are housed, right?
0: Absolutely. So, the like physical dimensions of the domestic space, you're so right, like become crucial to this. So, I feel like this is a good opportunity for me to read a, a small bit from uh, an excellent book I've been enjoying recently, which is really relevant to this kind of the emergence of the dinner party in the first place. Um, this book is called Scoff A History of Food and Class in Britain by someone called Penn Vogler. Um, and it it goes through sort of as- like particular foodstuffs that are sort of crucial to understanding food and class in Britain, but it also goes through various um, like how we eat and so on, like you know. And actually, for that matter, Kasha, I was going to ask you a question. Like, do you do you have dinner, tea, or supper? Or do you you ever have high tea, afternoon tea? Do you ever have luncheon, elevens is? Do you know what a country supper is? Like, the number of different words we have for a meal in this country is ludicrous. Mm. And, like, historically changes sort of every 10 to 15 years throughout the sort of 18th, 19th and 20th (laughs) centuries. And, like, depending on what region you live in, what class background you're from. But it's incredibly confusing. Like, there are parts Mm. of the North where dinner is lunch, uh, mm. you, you know it's like when you were at, when you were at primary school who what were the people that served you lunch called?
1: Dinner ladies.
0: Right why are they called dinner ladies? It's not dinner time <laughs> but that speaks to like this complex history of like naming particular meals mm. um Penn Vogler in this book Scoff like charts really well how like The time gradually got pushed back as electrification and the fact that you could actually stay awake in the evenings Mm. like changes. So anyway, sorry I didn't let you answer the question. What what do you eat, mate?
1: I would say that I eat all the time, so there's no point (laughs) giving it. No point giving it a name because I eat all the time. And um, I would say, but I would say, yeah, I eat dinner. I eat dinner, but my mum actually would say supper. But I don't know whether that's uh I think like I feel like supper the meaning of supper has changed over time and actually mm. I don't know whether it was always posh but now it sounds posh but she would say it and I don't think she's particularly posh but she would say supper and I don't know when I changed to dinner but I'm I'm <laughs> now a dinner I'm now a dinner lady You're a modern like, gal you're a 21st century
0: dinner. woman you know and uh, that's yeah. why you're having dinner <laughs> But no you're absolutely right like I we always used to tease my old housemate Ali for, for saying he would call his evening meal supper, and we're just like, oh, you're so posh, Ali, this is ridiculous. No one no one <laughs> under the age of 30 poor says Ali. supper, come on. Yeah, no, poor Ali, absolutely. He would stoutly defend it, and it turned out he was right to, in the sense that, like, the cultural and class connotations of each of these terms has shifted so much over the years to the point that I can't actually... Like, I've read this Penn Vogler book twice now, and, like, the bits where she's explaining who called what lunch, supper, dinner, afternoon tea, high tea at various different points and what time they ate it. It's actually just too complicated to keep... Like, you'd need one of those It's Always Sunny meme photos with the, like, bits of string connected with it. (laughs) Anyway, so Pen Vogler in the chapter The Dinner Party, The Middle Class's Revenge, takes us back to the Roman period when um, Trimalchio... Uh, like, hosted what was possibly the first dinner party in history. Um, It's sort of basically, it's almost like a satire of the Roman dinner party. Trimalchio, the host, is an alcoholic braggart and former slave, a member of the lowest class of free men who is aiming to impress his guests with his displays of wealth, his execrable poetry, and a succession of 12 courses of costly and ostentatiously disguised food served by singing and dancing slaves. It is surprising after this endless catalogue of vulgarity and excess that anybody ever dared host a dinner party again. And it seems that in Britain, anyway, nobody did until the 19th century. In the preceding two centuries, people of the same social circle would give a dinner, or dine with, or have a dinner engagement with one another perhaps a few nights a week. The guests might be staying for several weeks with their hosts, supplemented with a select party of friends and neighbours who are very likely to know one another. Spending the evening with friends began with a four or five pm dinner, which is wild to me. Um <laughs> followed by tea and perhaps cake, and ending with a late evening supper with cards or music in between. <laughs> it required staying power for the participants upstairs and the servants downstairs even more so, but at least everybody knew what to expect. She goes on to like mention a a, a similar a sort of occasion in Pride and Prejudice, which is sort of very useful example of like what seems like an early example of the dinner party, and sort of concludes that like this is part of a nineteenth century in which, um, among an emergent middle class that is, you know, being produced by industrialization, um and the industrial industrial revolution, that this sort of emerging mercantile and professional class had you know, apart from anything else, there's a lot of geographical mobility, people are getting to know new friends and establish themselves in new towns and cities in the nineteenth century. But they also then sort of have this you know, sense of an obligation to keep up appearances, to show off their homes and themselves mm. and their families and so on and and to sort of establish themselves as part as a key part of this network of like a new middle class. Elite that emerges in the nineteenth century, so I think that's the sort of that's the origin of what we understand to be the modern dinner party. But I think what's really interesting is that it has this big upsurge in the nineteen seventies uh, or sixties and seventies, which is a again about perhaps a new moment in kind of middle class middle class identity formation.
1: Middle class identity formation, absolutely. But I also think that you know the the fact that the nuclear family became like a staple type of family setup in the kind of 60s and 70s I was looking this up like it really reached its kind of like peak in the 60s and 70s as a form of family structure so previously because people would have to work there would be like a reliance on extended families and um, yeah extended families grandparents cousins etc and or communities and then kind of in the 1970s it really demonstrates a kind of High point in the nuclear family, which isn't because of nuclear, the, the idea of nuclear at the time, but is a reflection of uh, nucleus, I think. And it was like a term coined in like, I think maybe like the 1920s. And it really became a wow. kind of standard, you know, parents and their children kind of set up kind of in the 1970s, essentially. So it's also, I think, a reflection of that, that like housing changes around that time to reflect those family structures, right? that no no longer do families have, like, domestic servants, no longer do people go off to become domestic servants. It changed, like, there are huge changes and shifts around class in the Mm, kind of mid-20th century that really reflect on, like, why these dinner parties were being had, right?
0: Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's, I'm so glad you sort of filled some of that sort of stuff in because I was, I guess, slightly struggling to work out why it would be the 1970s particularly that would draw this attention and the 70 you know I mentioned the 70s dinner party um sort of photos and tumblr and book and so on you know there there is something very particular about that moment um as a a moment of a kind of new form of ostentation perhaps and this idea of taste is really important to kind of class and identity, I think, like having good taste. This is I rewatched Abigail's party this week as mm. preparation for this episode. <laughs> um what a painful, brilliant piece of uh piece of work it is. So this is like a Mike Lee film from nineteen seventy-seven, if you don't know it, about um exactly this kind of Emergent lower middle class, aspirational class, kind of ostentation and showing off and attempting to, you know, we have so many phrases for this in like English slang of like keeping up with the Joneses and um you know keeping up appearances and putting on airs and graces. All those things are going on in this increasingly fractious. So it's called Abigail's party. It is sort of a drinks party. It's telling that like. The most middle class of the guests has turned up, assuming she's going to be fed, and is not fed, like it's not a dinner party, Um, (laughs) and the lower middle class hosts, the sort of aspirational host, Abigail, has like put out some peanuts and stuff, and they're just, it's full of little sort of lines where like one of the guests will say something like, oh the snacks, are they're nice and dainty, aren't they, like they're just, but they're just eating peanuts. Um I I asked I asked my mum by the way if she would like expand on the sort of nineteen seventies dinner party aesthetic. She she wanted to know why the seventies as well, but I think you've nailed some of some of the like really important reasons why that moment that like it's so much as you say, it's about such like big macroeconomic things like housing mm. and stuff. Mm. Um, and post war reconstruction, you know, like the the, the fact that it's taken in, in a lot of cases, fifteen years actually for the rubble of the, of the bombing to be cleared away, and then for sort of the post-war sort of economic boom, the baby boom that followed it, to kind of create an environment in which people have space to um, in, to entertain, which is which is what what it's all about. My mum in sort of asking to like describe sort of a bit of the kind of aesthetic and kind of cultural. Context of like a nineteen seventies dinner party. She, her, and her friends apparently had been talking about it in their like knitting circle and were uh, talking about sangria as a sort of central thing. Um, punch bowls with hooked cups on the side, so the like cups kind of <laughs> cling onto the edge, the rim, the perimeter of the of the punch bowl. I guess those, yeah, Sangria and Punch, those both seem like quite 1970s. Like, you know, there's a new cosmopolitanism to some of this. People are going on holiday for the first time, which is another big class change, cultural change in the 1960s and 70s. Like, people whose ancestors would never, ever, ever have been able to afford to go away on holiday. They are the first in their, you know, family, families to sort of be able to afford to do that. Coming back with, like, ideas about foreign food, wanting to try paella, sangria and stuff at home. Uh, my mum also described a wooden party Susan with like little cheese biscuits in it.
1: Oh, wow. Like a lazy Susan.
0: Wait, what? Is a lazy Susan and a party Susan the same thing? It sounds oh, like maybe. it should be. I actually genuinely yeah. don't know. A party Susan's like <laughs> one of those things that, like I remember it from like... You can move
1: around you're sat on a table and you can move round like the little, it's like a wee, It's like a circle on a yes. some kind of joist thing where you can move... Yes like things around the table right
0: exactly yeah yeah, yeah,
1: of a round table
0: is that is yeah so that's a party season as i understand it which is probably the same as a lazy season i remember these from like one particular chinese restaurant i remember going to as a kid yeah and it was like the most exciting thing you would ever seen in your life um but yeah also like fondue kits um very popular in the 70s you know, the fondue I feel like is a very sim, is a really good example of like a kind of exotic continental food that like was particularly well suited for kind of entertaining. Um, and then my mum also said the thing that you forget, or we would ne- not even know about, is smoking indoors. Like over, mm-hmm. like you just sort of had to put up with the fact if anyone wanted to smoke, they would just smoke, and you'd put an ashtray out and. That was horrible. Basically, imagine that of your dinner. Like, gross. Like, so, you know, pro- progress <laughs> is not me a myth. of my,
1: like, university hall experience. It's like, oh, <laughs> the floor is an ashtray. <laughs> oh, this, <laughs> this piece of paper is an ashtray. Like,
0: <laughs> The floor is not imaginable. an ashtray, Kasha.
1: Everything was an ashtray. That floor was so gross. <laughs> Lovely stuff. <laughs> like, oh, that but... apple core on the side is an ashtray. It was so <laughs> gross. So when I think about an asparagus steamer, it kind of makes me think about uh, kitchens generally as a kind of like as a modern phenomena, as a modern spatial phenomena, because, you know, I think they're actually as complex or kind of as iconic as like nuclear missiles or computers and or cars of like defining the 20th century. They are like incredibly complex historical artifacts that I think highlight really advanced technical systems like so for example they're intimately bound with uh, the development of electrical grids or gas networks or water systems or even like ideas around the food chain and I think Hmm. that's before we even get to the gadgets that people have bought for them you know they represent such (laughs) huge changes in infrastructure in housing in street planning they really are I think a kind of a modern phenomena, and often we forget that because they're so commonplace now that we forget that actually, uh, in the kind of 1900s, uh, rich people would have kitchens. So they would have a kind of basement kitchen mm. where their servants would work and prepare the meals. But often, you know, the average person, because poverty was so high and so commonplace, they would live in like one or two rooms. And mm. that those two rooms would serve as their bedroom, living room and kitchen space. There was no like actually like clearly defined area but for most, for quite a lot of people, there was no specially defined area which kind of represented an area where they would prepare food. Um, mm. So I think that we or can... Or eat it. Or eat it, yeah, exactly. So I think that we can cha- We can trace really huge kind of societal shifts through the, through the area of the kitchen and also maybe the dining room, you know, from the disappearance of domestic servants, so changes in class, to, I guess, town planning. There are, you know the modern kitchen and I guess the modern dining room are modern exemplaries and they are, I think, phenomenal spaces to kind of look at historically like as social spaces, mm. essentially. And one thing to kind of briefly mention here is the importance of gender kind of in these uh, in these debates, especially in the immediate kind of Second World War period, just kind of at the start of the Cold War. And I've been thinking quite a lot about how, OK, side note, but how with the development of aerial bombardment... <laughs> There are no civilians. Yeah, sure. There are no civilians, and there are no military personnel. So you know the fact that you could bomb people from afar really changed the nature of warfare. And especially during something like the Cold War, when bombs weren't actually when nuclear when the nuclear threat was a deterrent rather than an actual um, thing. You know, I mean, there were proxy wars, but it wasn't like the USSR and America were actually bombing each other. Um, every single person was kind of an ideological combatant. So the Cold War, in many ways, was fought in the kitchen i know this sounds really like i'm gonna back that claim up but i really feel like the cold war was in many ways fought in the kitchen and women particularly mm. were almost like the frontline soldiers in that kind of in that battleground i'm gonna wow. flesh that out i'm gonna flesh that out I'm not no no this is this there. is a
0: proper like mind blown moment i wasn't thinking we'd get from the asparagus from asparagus to like Cold Cold War kind of (laughs) (laughs) combatants.
1: Well, because, you know, the kitchen has always been used as a kind of ideological battleground. You think about, you know, during the Second World War, there are slogans like the key to victory is in the kitchen. You know, it's not like these Mm -hmm. are ideological free spaces. But what they are, I think, is they're like... Interesting places where so many different social, cultural phenomena kind of coagulate, especially, for example, around women. So during the Second World War, many women experienced relative freedoms. You know, the men folk were off to war. They were required to either work in factories. And, and you know, I am kind of rooting some of these conversations mainly around middle class women because working class women had mm. no choice other than to work all of their lives. But with middle-class women, I think uh, quite a lot of these changes when their menfolk went away became quite apparent. And it was really hard actually to get a lot of women back into the domestic space because they're out fixing engines during the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, the menfolk come home and it's like, oh yeah, you have to get back into the domestic space. Often like, (laughs) you know, doing like, like drudgerous labor, like, you know, like washing clothes takes fucking ages it takes if, if you try and hand wash anything it takes so long you know like
0: if you tried using your mangle to dry things yeah. as well it's <laughs> so time consuming
1: i know i'm really glad i bought one though like you know just for the life
0: <laughs> <laughs> make your own mate come on um it is um so there's an interest there's such interesting tension there about like labor saving devices in that like on the one hand, we're sort of saying, well, this sort of culture around middle-class entertaining, maybe it was a way of giving women something more to do in the domestic space, like a very specific class of middle-class women who did not need to work outside of the home. Um, but then is the, are things like the asparagus steamer in this sort of critical 1960s, 70s sort of... Um, Period of sort of you know the the heart of the the baby boom and the and the sort of nuclear family and um, that sort of cultural moment that is so like it comes through in sort of fantastic American films like Far from Heaven where there's this just sort of like ennui in suburbia in middle class suburbia where it's the sort of Edward Scissorhands world almost where like you know um, there is uh, sort of something dark lurking underneath the suburban um kind of middle class zones so to what extent like you know is the asparagus steamer is it a labor saving device or is it sort of an extravagance of of modern life to to have on like because i think a lot of kitchen kitchen gadgets are about labor saving but a lot of them are actually about making more work in the kitchen aren't they
1: Mm, Yeah, no, it's interesting. I kind of think, in a way, I want to kind of slightly park that conversation. I want to kind of park that question. So I think what we're discussing here around dinner parties is very much a kind of social history that's rooted in like UK, UK British culture, right? And I kind of want to uh, extrapolate that and kind of uh, expand that a little bit more to include the context of the Cold War and actually the context of like competing ideologies at that time. So I think mm. like, some, and I wanna kind of like answer that question that you just said about labor saving uh, in a kind of roundabout way, but I think it's really important. So I'm just gonna take you on a little journey i want to kind of describe i want to explain to you a moment of what i kind of would would consider diplomatic high drama Um, so you're kind of looking Mm -hmm. at the 1970s but i think a lot of the roots of the conversations that you're thinking about were actually we can kind of locate them very kind of explicitly in the 1950s during that kind of early cold war period so i want to have you ever heard of the kitchen debate
0: no, I've heard of the kitchen cabinet, but that's, uh, that's much <laughs> that's later. That's show by Jay development.
1: <laughs> So during this period, lots of, um, I guess, lots of kind of Cold War politicians understood kitchen gadgetry to actually be the building blocks that represented a new social contract between citizens and the state. So, you know, politicians like Winston Churchill or Ludwig Erhard of West Germany or Walter Ulbricht of East Germany kind of recognize this. But particularly, I would say that, uh, Nikita Khrushchev and Vice President Richard Nixon uh, also kind of uh, understood this. So there was a series of kind of debates, we, we could call them kind of political high drama, in the late 1950s. So following a period of de in the USSR, as you, I, and our listeners know, Stalin died in 1953, <laughs> I think. And uh, following his yeah, death, you know. Right. Thank you. Thank you for the confirmation. Following his death, I said that really, really like, I said that really confidently. And then I was like, oh shit, what have I got this wrong?
0: It, it started confidently and then it tailed off, otherwise, <laughs> in terms of its confidence. But yeah, yeah so you're absolutely right. <laughs>
1: so um, essentially, following like a period of de Stalinization, where the USSR really kind of wanted to extrapolate Stalin, because Stalin, from that, during during his like leadership, he was the state. You know, he became a kind of metaphor. This is something we've spoken about. He became a metaphor for the state in people's lives. And mm-hmm. there was a real attempt, you know, a kind of recognition that when he died it really destabilized the, the concept of the state. So there was a process of destalinization where a lot of the policies that Stalin, you know, especially around like you know the, terror, the like the terrorizing of, of citizens, you know that kind of was like mm-hmm. rethought and reversed slightly. And in 1958, there was kind of a cultural, kind of like a cultural policy agreement between the USSR and the USA that kind of attempted to, I guess, build bridges, right? And as a way of Mm -hmm. building bridges, one kind of aspect of that was kind of a cultural exchange. So in 19, in the June of 1959, uh, there was a Soviet exhibit in New York where they exhibited Sputnik. So missiles basically like where they can go in terms of space. So like the space race. Uh, um, the uh, American. In New York. In New York. That's so there quite was surprising. a kind of Soviet, yeah. Soviet exhibition in New that. York. And then a month later, there was a US exhibition in Moscow. And Vice President Nixon took Khrushchev around this exhibit, basically, which featured, I think, products from 400, 450 different companies. And. Um, yeah, it kind of led to a series of surreal conversations where they debated, so uh, Khrushchev and Nixon kind of debated the strengths and weaknesses of capitalism and communism, but around like, like one of them took place in a kind of model kitchen. <laughs> so they're having That's this conversation. So I know, yeah, it just seems so incredibly surreal. Um, and kind of when, uh, you know, Khrushchev's kind of going around and he kind of asked Nixon, you know, people in America buying these products and Nixon kind of admitted then that some of them were prototypes and in a way it shows how aspirational a lot of these objects were so like there's a politics of futurity in the kitchen and it was meant to show kind of like technological but also like financial advancements in a way so this like one of the most surreal conversations took place in this kind of mock kitchen. And they were surrounded by like a hob and a refrigerator and, uh, you know, Mm. like a dishwasher. And they're having these conversations about which one's better, capitalism or communism. And Nick, you know, Khrushchev's like, you know, we have these things here. And then Nixon's like, this represents what an average American on $14,000 can afford. Like, you know, over there, like a series of like lifetimes or whatever, like series of like years or whatever and Nikita Khrushchev at that I think like a kind of, the dominant story around this is that it was the price of that you know it was the price of all of mm. these like kitchen appliances because you could get them in the USSR but they were like more expensive so it was like this idea and do you know what thinking about this I was thinking about this and it just makes me so it just makes me so sad that US he- <laughs> U.S. hegemony is so unchallenged now that they wouldn't even think of, like, lowering the price of things. I don't know. <laughs> that, like, they obviously set a low price because they wanted to impress Nikita Khrushchev, Whereas, like, now we wouldn't even be granted that, you know? It's like, it just feels, I don't know, it just kind of made me sad that there is like I'm not I'm not nostalgic for the for the Soviet Union absolutely not you know like that's not my that's not my politics but uh it just kind of got me thinking how how interesting that kind of moment is where they're both kind of trying to do a bit of one-upmanship and particularly and I think this is kind of like coming back to your idea of labor saving so like Chris just like all right okay you can get this for this price but um He's kind of walking around and he's kind of criticising a lot of the things because they seem more complicated than the actual traditional way, you know? Like, so he picks up a lemon squeezer <laughs> and he's like, he's like, okay, so what, like, you know, like a lemon juice for tea. And he's like, but you can just use your hands. <laughs> you can just use your hands to squeeze a lemon. Well, sorry,
0: that's Chris. Chris so that's like that.
1: You know, he's like to Nixon, he's like, so- why do you need a lemon squeezer? You've literally got two connected to your body. <laughs>
0: Out of interest, how do you, how do we, how do you slash we know so specifically what they said? This is a, like an amazing level of detail about this conversation. Because it was
1: all recorded. Like there are like photos oh, were taken. I there are like really surreal photos, yeah, yeah. and it was recorded in the press. It became this kind of diplomatic high drama. It was like well reported, and then the Soviets were angry at the Americans because the Americans. Um, the TV companies wanted to release the footage earlier than the Soviets wanted because it was like an agreement that it would all go out. And then the Soviets uh, broadcast it, but they broadcast it like late at night and only partially translated. You know, this is like a real moment.
0: Aren't you surprised though that Khrushchev would reject the futurity of the new lemon squeezing gadget? In the, like, isn't like you know this is is such an interesting kind of thing to throw into the mix here is it, and it's so useful that you mentioned that the space race was kind of like context for this because this is a period in which you know these two competing geopolitical lodestars and like political economies and you know obviously deeply contrasting kind of approaches to to governance of and and to you know what happens outside their borders as well no, It's all a sort of all
1: no, no, because they're selling different futures, Dan. They're selling different futures. Well, they are uh, Like I know what you're going to say, like, "Oh, doesn't it help Khrushchev?" But no, they're selling different futures. They're selling different visions of the future.
0: And is but that well, no, that's what's so interesting. And so Khrushchev's is one in which like a kitchen a kitchen gadget that makes it easier to squeeze lemon juice doesn't serve the revolution, like do, in it whereas like, you know, the various kind of world-changing space explorations um, and, you know, what's the dog called? Laika. Is it Laika? Laika, yeah. Um, yeah, the first dog in space. You know, they wanted to devote all of their energies to that and less to squeezing lemon juice, essentially. Well, <laughs> well
1: I think Because I feel is. like
0: kitchen innovation, like there's something about like the domestic space as a site of like um, technological innovation that, I don't know, is almost like an interesting analogy for sort of technological progress outside of the home or is perhaps like a a metaphor a sort of maybe not an analogy but like like even at home you can be living in the future at a point when technology is actually potentially doing that and is making work obsolete everywhere else like in the Jetsons
1: well this is it this is exactly it like there is so much aspirational uh Aspirational advertising, I guess, like the the kitchen is completely like an ideological battleground for a lot of this stuff. What you're describing here is what we talk about all the time on Cursed Objects is the relationship between big P and small P politics. You know, your personal politics as shown in the kitchen, but also the big P politics of these places and sites being like ideological battlegrounds. And I think there's something really interesting in the way that kitchen gadgets are sold to us. And so for example, me and Gabby were talk me and Gabby, my housemate Gabby, were talking about steamers the other day because why would you need a steamer ever? Like, why would you need it ever, you know? You can literally <laughs> just put a colander over a boiling pan and put a plate on top. There you go, steamed vegetables, that's it. You don't need a steamer. But I remember being a kid and uh, my mum got a steamer and I remember looking at the steamer and being like, wow, this looks like the future. There was like a real emphasis on like, crispness <laughs> of vegetables, you know? It's like smart smart technology for cooking your food. And I wonder, you know, maybe this is 10 years whether- That's There's- a health thing. Well, yeah, but I wonder also whether there's a relationship... The crispness, I mean. Yeah, but I wonder whether there's a relationship, maybe tenuously, to like the idea of like smart missiles in the Gulf War. I don't know why. You know, exact <laughs> cooking. There's something around exact cooking. Um, you know, like kind of getting things on target. I don't know, getting them... I don't know, there's something... Yeah. There's some. There's some thesis to be created there. But I kind of remember really viscerally looking at the packaging and thinking, this is... This is the future, steamers are the future, like what the fuck? And to put this into context, my mum has had the same brass scales in like for measuring out like mixed, like flour for cakes since I was a child. They only work on good hope and like faith alone, like honestly like you have to like get little (laughs) weights to try and like balance out the flower they literally just work on aspiration and you know we had a tv growing up that like was one of those like I don't know not even 3d like 4d it felt like you know stuff stuff, like a tv that you can balance stuff on and like we had that well well into like I don't know like like the 2000s until it basically completely broke like my family are not engaged in like hip new gadgets ever. But she sure. did they're not, get this they're steamer. Not queuing
0: they're not queuing round the block outside the Apple store to buy the the latest Apple steamer, which is Never. sort of plugged into your fit, Fitbit somehow. Yeah. Like,
1: the, even when the TV broke, like, we had to use, like, a, like, the button on the TV, if you lost the remote, the button on the TV to change the channels broke. And we'd have to use a pencil <laughs> to try and, which was so unsafe. Like, I don't know how we didn't all get electrocuted. It was just <laughs> nuts. But it kind of got me thinking about, like, aspirational advertising, you know? Like these these gadgets are sold on the promise of the future and that is implicitly Uh, maybe even explicitly ideological, I guess it just kind of made me think about how aspirational having a kitchen once was. Like, you know, the gadgets that Mm -hmm. we take for granted, fridges, hobs, whatever. In the mid-20th century, they were so aspirational, you know, it marked a real change Mm. in life conditions. But it feels almost like we've gone through the absolute looking glass now because... Now when I think about kitchen gadgets, I think about waste, I think about landfill sites, I think about us choking the planet to death on our insatiable appetite sure. for nonsense, you know, it's like... For more plastic
0: things that we don't need.
1: That we don't need. And that's...
0: And that's but isn't that an interesting component of this, um, you know, the of the, the kitchen gadget as an avatar for the sort of political um, culture around it, that like you could create a labour-saving device that doesn't save any labour, yeah. which is sort of what you're describing with, a, with like, your your critique of the steamer. Now, I know a lot of people, including my mum, my who is very pro-steamer and thinks that you do need a, you know, it Sorry, is Dan's worth mom. having that, those stacking pans that, you know, I mean, I don't have one, but I can see the argument for it. But, like, yeah, the idea that there's a labour-saving device that doesn't save any labour feels very... 20th cent, like late 20th century, the world before the climate apocalypse became quite so. Because now, when I think about, like, you know, do I want to get a rice cooker? As I've been wondering to myself recently, because I do cook a hell of a lot of rice, and I'm like, well, is is or is that just another bit of plastic that the world absolutely does not need, and I Mm -hmm. do not need? I have been making rice very well, I may say, in my late grandmother's old green pan that is like the perfect size and shape for it for like a decade and a half. And why shouldn't I continue doing that? Are there any uh, particular kitchen gadgets that you own that you think, fall into that category of just completely redundant, like, wasteful objects that we don't need, cursed in the very 21st century, like, unsustainable way.
1: So I'm really, I'm really glad you asked, because this is when I show my like fascistic tendencies. I have very strong feelings. (laughs) I have very strong feelings about kitchen gadgets, spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Again, like that's like a, that's like a joke, isn't it? Like a lot of people say to women, get back in the kitchen. Like the kitchen is a site of, (laughs) of conflict, right? But I, I do spend a lot of time in the kitchen. I love my kitchen. Mm. And, um, there are a number of like little things that like people have tried to bring into my kitchen that like i'm just like no i can't deal with this i can't deal with this
0: Were they they were chased out with a carving knife honestly
1: so like one of them was that my i think it was my brother maybe bought some silicon poached poached egg poaching cups that you just don't need like you don't need a silicon egg poaching cup you just can use the water and i had a friend once are they supposed to
0: balance uh, sorry to interrupt they balance the kind that balance sort of like a little boat in the yes. water yes I that, think I think right.
1: so um I mean I've never used them they're just in the drawer and they make me furious every time I open it um <laughs> my friend once had a machine that you could that you steamed them in so you'd like have this like little like actually one that you plug in machine and you'd put like water wow. on the bottom and it'd have like you know grooves in it and you crack the eggs into it and it steam it that way make me, it just made me furious, you know, I think, I think that was like, I encountered that when I was 15, and I was like, I'm furious, I can't deal with this. Um, Also, I was doing some research, and I came across a banana slicer, which I was trying to, I was trying to uncover why (laughs) that made me so angry. You mean a knife? Well, exactly. Well, it made me angry because I don't think bananas are standard shapes, right? But I remember as a kid we had an egg slicer, and I and I fully back them. I think egg slicers are great because eggs kind of oh, are the a standard thing shape. That you pull
0: down like a sort of uh, it's like a, a guillotine, but it's got but several. for eggs,
1: I honestly thought it was like magic. I thought it was like this was an innovation in like <laughs> science and technology. I thought it was phenomenal. I hate. I hate. Popcorn machines, you don't need a popcorn machine, just use a pan. Um, I also am, this is maybe like my most, this is maybe my most controversial, but I hate George Foreman's, I hate George Foreman's lean green fat reducing grilling machines because most Hobbs have grills. You have a grill. (laughs) And I had a friend, I had a friend who would make bacon on the lean green fat reducing grilling machine like would make bacon on it and then would make Linda McCartney veggie sausages in the bacon grease and I've just (laughs) never encountered anything more (laughs) disgusting in my (laughs) life.
0: (laughs) Veggie sausages in bacon grease is quite a I mean that's you know that's (laughs) is that not just the third way we were talking about the sort of you know great polar kind of you know fight ideological fight between capitalism and communism
1: maybe that is the um, third way yeah you're right you're right yeah
0: yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's quite a (laughs) persuasive list of um cursed gadgets you've got there i think i've I've thought extensively about this
1: i've thought extensively
0: what if you go into you know i mean there is that it is the kitchen is a, a world that has you know probably more than any other room in the house been sort of subject to the gadgetification of uh, of of just like let's let's for god's sake let's try and find some more ways to sell people crap made of plastic that mm. um yeah really doesn't improve your life a great deal i have a fondue kit that's a that's a ridiculous thing that almost never gets used. Like I, I can't believe you've never invited me round for
1: fondue. What the fuck? No. Where's my fondue no, invitation?
0: <laughs> okay, we'll do. We'll do. What What would be the perfect dinner party? Like seventies dinner party. Oh, you can come round for like prawn cocktail, Stunning. followed by followed by fondue. Everything will be, yeah, just sort of slathered in a weird sauce that, you know, we can have, we can maybe have some savoury jelly. Oh my God, I'll get
1: my mum's recipe, the one that traumatised me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, with just some little bits of sort of chicken or tuna and maybe the odd carrot just suspended in in the jelly. Well,
1: because this is the thing, because of the Polish household I come from, like, I'd be like a kid and I would open the fridge and there would be like... There would be like a meat jelly, like meat in aspic. But the thing is, is my mum would make it in the same like jelly thing that she would make the sweet oh, jelly. No.
0: <laughs> it wasn't so, in like a robot mold or something. Like <laughs> you know, just something really kiddie and sort of.
1: So fun. I'd, l- like, I'd like I I I'd look at it and be like, oh my god, jelly, and then like it's got like I don't know like unnamed meat in it and also like just coming back to um and like also oh my god like cow's tongue there'd be like a cow's tongue and you know the taste buds on a cow's tongue are like they're like they're like little spikes they're so visible they're like little spikes it's so gross oh I
0: feel quite unwell like I'd open the fridge right off my veggie sausages and bacon fat here (laughs)
1: I just wanted to say, we were talking about dinner parties and how interesting, like, cultural, there are, like, different cultural uh, types, like, sorry, different cultural norms associated with dinner parties. So if I go to a Polish dinner party, it is expected that you will drink vodka. That's it. Like, you will drink vodka. Like, either the host prepares, like, a kind of flavoured vodka or you bring round a bottle. You know, it's like... You will be drinking vodka. That is what you do at a dinner party. I just cannot imagine in these kind of like she-she Islington dinner parties. <laughs> I don't know what they do so with you, me.
0: <laughs> how are you resorting to like, you know, tarnishing Islington's name here as well? I'll, I'll, isn't there? Like, it's hard to beat a there, habit is, of a lifetime. <laughs> No, fair enough, yeah, we're all just affected by the ideology of the world around us, and that proves it, you know, <laughs> just like, oh god, that's so isling to dinner party. I mean, I'm actually, there's also like, there's also what perhaps worth mentioning, like a, a Twitter meme that I'm very, very fond of, which shows that I'm not above uh, casting the name of dinner parties in vain either, which is the reference to the Zone 2 dinner party voice. Which I feel like I'm going to struggle to explain this to someone who isn't on Twitter. Not you, Cash. Obviously, you're all over that. Uh, That's where we met, (laughs) in fact. Um, But, like, you know, people like my mother who own this asparagus steamer and, you know, have better things to do with their time, bless them, than than being on Twitter. The Zone 2 dinner party voice, I feel like, is a, a meme that sort of speaks to London's Zone 2 a gentrified zone two that maybe used to be more of a sort of socially mixed area and is now the perfect example of like a young professional who is being paid too much to work in a white collar job and then has their friends round to a zone two dinner party and then says something in their zone two dinner party voice like you know, if Labour is going to get serious about winning elections again, it simply has to, you know, welcome more Conservatives into the party, for example. That's the sort of thing someone would say in a Zone 2 did a party voice, but that's a joke. I'm it's a, it's a, like, gag format I'm very fond of, because I think it speaks to... It's a good way of um, ventriloquizing, like... Mm. An opinion you hate basically <laughs> but it's very we talk i mean you know let's throw back to the hinge bath bomb episode it's very bumble energy mm. it's the the dating app bumble again kind of encapsulates this certain sort of snootiness um which is less about an aspirational a kind of class aspirational identity and more about a condescending snobbish one I think like I think the idea is ultimately if you're having a dinner party then you're a stop which is you know the problem with the term that I think most people have and it's why most people would say no I'm going to for dinner I mean do you would you your Polish dinner party description would you would you call them dinner parties if we
1: absolutely outside
0: this conversation yeah you would oh that's yeah. good that's good you're not afraid of <laughs> the stigma <laughs>
1: I'm trying to aspire. I'm aspiring to dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> Drink enough. vodka, but and make a dinner party. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it's the vodka in a punch bowl with hooked cups on the side, uh, or perhaps even in a fondue. No, you can't heat. vodka. Well, because this is um, the thing,
1: is that like Poland, because of because of the Iron Curtain, because of like, mm. you know, like basically it's like cultural... Not stagnation, because it wasn't stagnation. It was like flourishing but in a very different way. Like, you know, in a completely unique way from like Western Europe. Like a lot of the vibe, like I feel like I've carried around the nineteen seventies a lot a lot longer than like a lot of my friends who aren't aren't from Eastern Europe, you know? Like I flicked through yeah. my mum's cookbooks and a lot of them were very nineteen seventies. I would like visit family in Poland and the vibe was very like a kind of, you know, like uh, wooden furniture, kind of like very 1970s. Wooden furniture, maybe my like in a kind of burnt orange. Yeah, like a kind of burnt orange. Yeah. Like, you know my sofa in my room that's like...
0: Mm. Have you seen that?
1: That's like a kind of like burnt orange. Kasha's like,
0: house, for the benefit of our listeners, is is very much like the set of Abigail's party. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I live in a kind of weird time time capsule of 1970s culture. Yeah. Just carry it around with me, what can I say? <laughs>
0: and And then, you know, and then you go home to your folks' place and open the fridge and get yourself a bit of meat jelly out, you know, so yeah, you're you're very much like I feel like you're you're a woman out of time almost, and uh, that's
1: why I'm a historian,
0: and it's why you're a dinner party enthusiast as well. yeah, exactly <laughs> excellent, well, this has all had the effects of making me kind of very hungry and quite wanting some asparagus some prawn cocktail possibly all of this set in aspic and then (laughs) served in a party susan um just because just for the just for the spinning vibe um but it's been a really fun conversation as ever and i hope you'll join us again next week for another cursed object um if you want more from us (laughs) Pictures of things if, in
1: aspect,
0: for example, uh, then do check us out on Twitter or Instagram where we'll be sharing kind of more links to stuff we've been reading and stuff that's related to the show. You can also hit us up on Patreon, um, all of these are very simple, just search for cursed objects on Twitter or Google or Instagram and you will find us. Um, and uh, yeah, if you can afford to do support the show so that we can keep buying more um you know useless kitchen gadgets uh
1: thanks so much everyone i've been dr casualty and i'm about to go and recreate abigail's party in my living room
0: (laughs) and i've been dan hancocks and i'm about to go and get myself some lunch and uh serve it in a fondue kit
1: (laughs) thanks everyone bye